Right, the interview with Curtis. This time I'm all studied up and I'm ready to contribute in a learned and respectable manner. So, should I ask the first question or do you want to? Actually, I have a more important job for you. One that will take all your cunning and your analytical skills. Okay, and then the interview? No, I'm afraid this task is of such importance, of such grandiose majesty and such enormity that you just won't have time for anything else for a long time to come. I'll have to tackle Curtis on my own, I'm afraid. Ah, can't say I'm not disappointed. So what's this job then? What what could be that crucial? Josh, your task, your labour, Joshua, the thing that you must devote your life to, the thing that must become the sole essence of your existence, is to find out everything you can about our new patron, John. John? John. Everything? Everything. Oh no, John is more than just a regular patron. He's a producer. No mere member of the conspiracy to keep this podcast afloat. He's actively causing it to happen, moment to moment, staring us like a cosmic vessel towards points unknown. Sorry, we're still talking about John? Yes, who else would we be talking about? Well, no, it's just that it's John. You know, he's the one who first taught the cephalopods about Christmas and armed them for our war against it. He's the one who warmed the polar ice caps on behalf of the lizard people. And we're almost certain he sent Julius Caesar forward in time to do 9-11. We already know all there is to know about his part in all of this. Ah, well, that's good. Well done. Good job. Fantastic work. Marvellous. Thrilling stuff. Stupendous. The finest of research fripperies. So I can be part of the interview now? No. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. This week I'm interviewing Curtis Hagen, who for a while Josh and I were erroneously calling Curtis Hagen. This is one of those embarrassing situations where it turns out you know someone by first name, but not it turns out by surname. So with the emphasis on Hagen and not Hagen, today we're going to talk about Curtis's new book, Conspiracy Theories and the Failure of Intellectual Critique, which is about to be published by the University of Michigan Press. Now, I should point out that I'm not an unbiased person when it comes to this book. Not only did I read some early drafts of the text, but I was one of the expert reviewers recruited by the University of Michigan to say yay or nay to the text. So I guess really, if there are any problems with the text, Curtis can end up blaming me and say, well, why didn't you stop me from saying that? Anyway, hello, Curtis, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. So you're in Florida. Uh, Dare I ask, how are things in the United States at the moment? Gosh, uh, last I checked, I guess they're okay. Um, I don't get out much. Probably wise, given the, well, all the stuff that's going on there. Although I must say, I was glued this morning to the fricard that's going on in the British parliamentary system. You may be aware that almost every single member of Boris Johnson's cabinet has either resigned or is in the process of resigning. So across the Atlantic, there are, there are other issues going on as well. 
All right, so we're here to talk about your new book, Conspiracy Theories and the Failure of Intellectual Critique, but we should probably talk about your origin story as a conspiracy theory theorist. So you're a retired academic. You were a former associate professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy at SUNY, that's the State University of New York in Plattsburgh. Actually, where is Plattsburgh? It's way up north. It's, it's an hour south of Montreal, and just across um, Lake Champlain from Burlington, Vermont. So it's, it's way up in the north part of, um, of New York State, almost in Canada. Yeah, this is one of these things where I don't think people outside the United States, or indeed outside the state of New York, realize that New York is not just New York City, but <laughs> right. also the state of New York is actually it's quite lengthy in the way it kind of goes north. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, you've written previous books. You wrote Lead Them with Virtue, A Confucian Alternative to War, Philosophers of the Warring State, a source book in Chinese philosophy, and the philosophy of, and I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, even though I live in China and I'm meant to be learning Mandarin, the philosophy of Sun Tzu, a reconstruction. And at least on the surface, these are quite different in topic and scope than conspiracy theories and the failure of intellectual critique. So what is your origin story when it comes to conspiracy theory, theory, and philosophy? Well, it's true that in uh, graduate school, I kind of focused on Confucianism, and so that's why these other books were on Confucianism. Um, I started teaching in Plattsburgh uh, in 2005, and in 2006, um, I became interested in conspiracy theories surrounding 9-11 and began familiarizing myself with those theories and the kind of the back and forth between supporters and um, critics. Um, and then a couple years later, I think this is around 2008-ish, um, I encountered David Cody's book, um, uh, conspiracy theories, the philosophical debate. I, I'm not 100% sure that that was the first thing on this topic that I encountered, but it was probably one of the first. And that's what I remember um, uh, reading that. And then shortly thereafter, reading the um, uh, special issue of Episteme, which had a bunch of... And so that was basically all of the work in the philosophy of conspiracy theories at that time. And um, I thought I could um, contribute to that. I was quite impressed with, um, in particular, um, uh, Charles Bigden's work and, and, and David Cody in those, um, in those two uh, collections. And, um, and I, I more or less agreed with them and more or less disagreed with um, some of the other articles, but Cody and Bigden had pretty much... Um, already criticized those other articles. So I was kind of looking for something to, um, some entry point. And along comes <laughs> Gas Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule with their paper. Um, and so um, so I started to, to write a, uh, well, I reviewed it critically and, and started to write a, a paper responding to it. And so that was my first uh, paper uh, in the area. And um, um, it was kind of, um, I was I was never sure if it was going to get published. 
right? I wasn't sure. I mean, Cody and Pigden had kind of um, established that it's possible to write papers of this nature, but um, still, uh, I wasn't sure. And I, I got desk rejected from the um, Journal of Political Philosophy, which is where Sunstein's paper was published. Uh, and I really thought that that's where my paper should be published. And at least, uh, you know, if it's not good enough, that's fine. Uh, but, you know, it should be reviewed. And, and you know, if it's not good enough, then the reviewers will say that it's not good enough or whatever. But instead, I it was just rejected out of hand. Uh, so I decided to, um, I published it elsewhere and I decided to write another shorter paper um, to make, have a second shot at getting published at the same journal, the uh, Journal of Political Philosophy. And that, that too was desk rejected. And, and I kind of pleaded with them to, to, um, to at least have it considered and sent out for review. And they, uh, they wouldn't do that. Um, so that's why I ended up with two papers, uh, uh, both criticizing, <laughs> um, Sunstein and Gemuel's paper. So that's where things started, yeah. Yes, and we'll be we'll be talking more about Sunstein and Vermeule later on in this discussion because it's a it's a it's a central part of conspiracy theories and the failure of intellectual critique. I'm actually interested in submitting that work to the journal that Sunstein and Vermeule were published in because you're not the only person to have taken a punt at criticizing Sunstein mm. and Vermeule. It seems to be a fairly common kicking horse we have in the philosophy of conspiracy theories to go, look, there's this really, really bad paper that was published in a fairly decent journal. And there are there are questions about not just the content, but also presumably also what kind of peer review went on there. So it is a little bit disheartening to find out that you can write a reply to such a paper and the journal's just not going to consider it at all. Right. And, and Adrian Vermeule is on the editorial board of that journal, which is, I would think, an additional reason to think, you know, we shouldn't just block anything that criticizes one of our um, editorial board members. So, so I, I would think that's even more of a reason to have it reviewed and make sure everything is on the up and up, you know, and we're not playing favorites here. Yes, but we also have to remember Adrian Vermeule is now the libertarian who would like to restrict voting rights to only people who agree with him. So I suspect rejecting criticisms of his work is indeed very consistent with his worldview. Perhaps. All right. So why don't you give us a brief synopsis of conspiracy theories and the failure of intellectual critique? Well, uh, as I say in the in the very beginning of the preface, um, um, my goal is to make serious consideration of conspiracy theories um, respectable among the sophisticated. Uh, and <clears throat> what I do essentially is I defend conspiracy theories, not as true, but as um, sort of unscathed by the critiques coming from academics, especially the generalist critiques. And I'm sure we'll talk about particularism versus generalism, but critiques that try to give a blanket reason for dismissing all 
conspiracy theories. And so I basically argue that none of those work, even for um, examples like the 9-11 conspiracy theory or JFK conspiracy, conspiracy theory, which I take to be two of the most paradigmatic conspiracy theories. Yeah, so that's one of those things where I now wonder what's going to be the next paradigmatic conspiracy theory that makes up the literature. Because we both kind of came of age in the philosophy of conspiracy theories, with 9-11 being the kind of common one that everybody talks about. Whilst if you look at the pre-9-11 work, we're looking at Charles's work and Brian's work. The, I mean, Brian makes a big thing about the Oklahoma City bombing as his paradigmatic uh, example. Charles is much more interested in kind of historical conspiracy theories, particularly within the Anglophone world. And mm. I do wonder, what is going to be the next paradigmatic one? You know, what, what is, going, is JFK and 9-11 going to be replaced eventually? And if so, is it going to be replaced with recurrent discussion of things like QAnon and the like? Or are these just going to be flashes in the pans and we'll be going back to the classics again and again and again? I don't know, but I suspect we'll be building. Like, I, I think that uh, 9-11 and JFK will remain um, paradigm, paradigmatic cases, but we'll add to them. Uh, that's just a guess. But um, And I think there's something involving 9-11, or, or rather um, COVID-19, will probably be, uh, but it's not clear yet what, what, uh, which one that will be. Um, and the whole QAnon thing, I hope that doesn't become a paradigmatic case. Um, just because I, you have conspiracy theories that, at least to my mind, are interesting and, and hard to, um, hard to really adjudicate. Um, and then you have some that are just sort of wacky, um, and some people like to focus on those. I like to focus on the ones that, to my mind, um, have some plausibility. Yes, I mean, this, the QAnon thing always makes me think of David Icke and his alien shape-shifting reptiles, which is, mm. it's, a, it's a view which is held by some. It's a remarkably persistent view in certain communities, but it doesn't seem like it's a paradigmatic version of a conspiracy theory and that it's whole it's held by and i'll use that terrible term by a fringe view mm -hmm. and they're persistent in holding that fringe view but it's actually it's a view that not many people know about what well, you can say 9-11 or jfk and people can immediately come up with conspiracy theories around them. If right. you mention alien shape-shifting reptiles, you have to do a lot of work to scaffold exactly what you're going to do with that kind of analysis. And I think QAnon's going to be the same way, but I think it is interesting the media have glommed on to QAnon in a way that they've never really glommed on to things like alien shape-shifting reptiles. Hmm. Yeah. Now, we should probably get from you a definition of conspiracy theory before we start getting into the weeds about exactly what your work does. So could you tell us, what is your take on what a conspiracy theory is? Um, well, first of all, uh, I don't think that there is a platonic form. So I'm not trying to find out what the truth is. Um, 
And I think like thinking about paradigmatic cases can help us think about uh, family resemblances between theories and, you know, that way of thinking about it rather than, um, you know, strict um, necessary and sufficient conditions. That having been said, um, what I'm trying to do, as I, as I said earlier, is defend conspiracy theories uh, in a certain sense. And so what is it that I'm defending when I say I'm defending conspiracy theories? I'm defending not just theories about um, conspiracies or that involve conspiracies, but cons theories that involve conspiracies even when um, they run counter to an official story. Um, and even when they imply uh, appalling behavior on the part of um, elites. Um, so for the purposes of, of, of my book, um, that sort of serves as the definition. Theories about conspiracies um, where they are also contrary to official accounts and imply some kind of um, appalling behavior. I, but I do at the same time make a distinction there between, um, you know, appalling behavior and being evil or nefarious, because I think those words are too strong. Um, uh, if you say something is evil, it's like you're making a judgment from a, um, from a privileged perspective. That's evil. That's, or even nefarious, it sort of comes down like that's an objective. Whereas appalling, just that's subjective from somebody's perspective. Some people are appalled. So, for example, 9-11, uh, the idea that, that Cheney uh, orchestrated that uh, would certainly be uh, appalling to the most relevant population of people of the United States, if, if they thought that, they would, they would find that appalling behavior. Now, maybe uh, if somebody were, to, were, were actually to conduct a, a false flag operation like that, they would have a reason for doing it, and it, wouldn't, it would be justified by the, um, you know, some utilitarian calculation, perhaps. And so it might not be evil objectively, but it would still be appalling and and the re and because it's appalling, it has to be kept a secret. So that explains why you can have a conspiracy theory that is um, not um, not not evil, um, but needs to be uh, kept secret. Almost sounds as you're defending Dick Ch Dick Dick Cheney. I'd be quite happy to say that Dick Cheney is an evil, evil man, but that's just my own personal political pre preference there. But no, you're right. Uh, one of the things which I've always talked about is that if we believe these conspiracies occur, most of the time, and I'll emphasize most, because I think there might be some cases of people engaging in appalling behavior they know is mor morally wrong, but mm -hmm. most of the time, they're not mustachioed pantomime or vaudevillian villains who are twirling their mustaches as they laugh maniacally. I will pull this lever and destroy the world. As you say, they normally have some rhyme or reason as to why they're doing this event. And they're going, well, the public can't know I am responsible. Actually, so 
I because I just finished watching the HBO sequel series to Watchmen. Do you know the Ellen Moore graphic novel Watch Wa- Watchmen? I, I know it from vaguely from when I was a kid. I had a, one of the episodes, um, but uh, yeah, I haven't seen the movie or anything. So, because the the whole premise of Watchmen is, it turns out that there is a former costume vigilante by the name of Ozymandias, who is, has realised that the world is on the brink of nuclear annihilation in the late eighties, and so he creates a false flag event. He mm. sets his scientists up to genetically engineer what appears to be a giant alien psychopath uh sorry telepathic octopus and he teleports it into the middle of new york killing three million people on the notion that this will make people start looking outwards rather than 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 inwards and they'll decide that they'll join together to fight off this external force rather than annihilate themselves with nuclear weapons so ozymandias does not consider himself to be a villain he thinks he's saving the world but at the sacrifice of three million people and selling a big lie and that's one of those things where if you talk to Ellen Moore about Watchmen, he kind of vacillates as to whether he thinks Ozymandias is really the hero or is an actual villain of the piece, because an awful lot ends up being kind of decided on whether you think the intention to do good using perverse means actually mm. is kind of ends justifying the means. Right. Right. So yeah, I, so so yes, I'm 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 with you on the. We should focus on the appalling because the appalling gives us the kind of salient relevance class for how people react to things being done in secret, without necessarily having to say that the people doing these things are engaged in evil or sinister acts. That's a kind of that's another issue that can be dealt with in a, in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, and I would also distinguish between evil and merely greedy, or whatever. Um, and so you you can have uh, a selfish interest and then sort of rationalize it, um, and that's probably a lot of what goes on. Yes, rationalization is a terrible human activity and explains an awful lot of what people do on a day-by-day basis. Now, I do want to come back to the official theory part, because this is one of the big things in Mm -hmm. the philosophical discussion about conspiracy theories, as to whether we should be defining conspiracy theories in reference to official theories. Now, as you've said, your task here is not necessarily to give us a set of necessary and sufficient conditions for what counts as a conspiracy theory. You're interested in a particular kind of conspiracy theory that, let's say, the sophisticated tend to turn their their nose up at. Right, right. And um, um, that I want to defend, right? And so so the kinds of... So part of what's... um, influencing the, my definition for my purposes is the kinds of generalist arguments that I'm up against, which one of which is, um, you know, that we should believe what the epistemic authorities tell us. Right. And so that's why we should believe official accounts. And so if I'm going to respond to that, uh, it's just useful to have that be part of what I mean by conspiracy theory. Yeah, so it gives us a kind of salience class. These are the conspiracy theories we're mm-hmm. interested for this particular kind of analysis. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, let's let's get into the weeds of this. So the book's broken up into three parts. Part one deals with the philosophical aspect of conspiracy theory theory and the debate between, as you've mentioned, generalists and particulars. Uh, part two focuses on Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule, who we've already touched upon briefly, but we'll get back to them. And then part three takes to task the work in some of the social sciences regarding conspiracy theory theory. So let's take each part in turn. So part one recaps a debate which long-term listeners of this podcast will be well aware of. But let's talk about some of the specifics of that debate, which is the debate between generalists and particularists. So what's your take on the distinction between what makes you have a generalist view about conspiracy theories versus a particularist view on the same topic? Well, I think it's easier to start with the particularists. Um, The particularists um, think that each particular conspiracy theory ought to be judged on its own particular merits and faults. Um, And it's easy to identify particularists because I'm a particularist and you're a particularist. And um, actually, most of the people who have published multiple articles on this topic are particularists. David Cody and Charles Pigden and Lee Basham. And I think we can say Brian Keeley and um, waveringly perhaps uh, Yuha Raika. Um, and um, and so, so it's pretty clear what the particularist position is and, and who is def- who's defend- <clears throat> defending that position. The generalists are a little bit harder uh, to uh, define partly because nobody wants to admit to being a generalist. <laughs> and that is because I think, I think that is because um, particularism is so obviously correct um, that ultimately it has to be the, um, um, the particulars that, that, that matter because we know that some conspiracy theories have turned out to be true. So we can't just, dismiss them. Um, so generalists, I, I talk about generalists or generalism in spirit kind of rather than um, a strict generalist, like a strict generalist would come up with some reason to say, based on this, all conspiracy theories can be dismissed as unwarranted. So nobody's willing to quite go that far. And yet, um, they want to make some kind of an argument that will give us a shortcut um, so that we don't have to bother with all the evidence um, for each conspiracy theory that we can have some way of um, writing them off. Um, And so examples of that uh, are the, um, if somebody would have talked um, kind of uh, line, or um, we can just trust the epistemic authorities, therefore official accounts are, are um, to be believed, or um, conspiracy theories have certain features which make them unlikely to be true, and therefore we shouldn't believe, um, shouldn't believe them. And so all of these sort of strategies, or at least generalist in spirit, um, and 
I've argued and, and most of us have argued in, in, uh, in one way or another that this, that, and the other of these generalist arguments don't work. And I keep saying, um, making the, the general statement that these generalist arguments have all, have all failed. All of them that, that have been put forward in the literature have failed. And it's not surprising that they failed because particularism is obviously right. So what distinguishes generalism in the sense that we're saying they've got bad arguments from our earlier discussion of going, well, you know, QAnon conspiracy theories, they, okay. they, they, they seem a bit weird. They seem like the kind of thing that we can safely dismiss. So what makes that, what makes that mm. kind of move on our part not a little bit of a little bit of generalism. Right, right. So I guess I would say that uh, we can concede that there are some subsets of conspiracy theories um, that um, can be dismissed on general terms. For example, conspiracy theories that involve um, important um, logical contradictions that are central to the theory. Um, um, conspiracy theories that involve uh, entities that we have really no reason to believe exist. Um, and, and, and some of these categories might have still some tiny, tiny glimmer of possibility left in them or whatever, but, you know, time is, is, is finite. Um, but whenever we're dealing with a conspiracy theory where there is an analogy uh, um, to a real conspiracy, um, then that can't be simply dismissed in a general, in a general way. We have to look at okay, is that one um, well-evidenced or not? Yeah, so this is the argument that, sure, there are, there are some conspiracy theories with suspicious features. I'm now, I'm, I'm now plugging my own paper here. Con suspicious conspiracy theories recently available open access in, syn in syn synthase. But even if they've got those suspicious features, there's still, still a small possibility they might be true because mm -hmm. our understanding of the world actually might be wrong or skewer. Mm -hmm. So when we're not committed from the claim that we can dismiss some conspiracy theories because we don't have the time or energy to investigate them to the bigger claim that they must be unwarranted, mm -hmm. which seems to be the move that generalists want to make. They want to go, well, look, these are bad conspiracy theories. We can then generalize from that and go, when you encounter a conspiracy theory, you should think of them in exactly the same way. Right. Yes. So I, I, when you say that, it makes me think, so we're arguing kind of the opposite, that some conspiracy theories are true, so it's possible that another conspiracy theory might be true. And they're arguing that some conspiracy theories are wacky, uh, therefore conspiracy theories are wacky. If they had, if they had made an exactly analogous move, therefore some conspiracy theories are wacky, and so possibly this other conspiracy theory is wacky, then that actually would have been valid, but it wouldn't tell us for sure that, that all conspiracy theories are wacky. Yeah, so this is actually a point because I've been in conversation with 
Brian L. Keeley recently about a paper I'm working on. And he talks about this with respect to the way that Daniel Dennett talks about burden tennis. The idea that sometimes you're engaging in a game of saying, who shoulders the burden of proof in the situation? And Brian's going, well, the problem with when we start talking about the sum, some conspiracy theories are yeah. warranted. And we characterize the generalists as saying, well, they also admit some conspiracy theories are warranted. They just think the sum is small, whilst we think the sum is large. And then we're basically like a game of tennis. We're kind of lobbing the word sum yeah. back and forth yeah. across the court. And to an outside observer, the question is, yeah, but how big is that sum? Because that, if we could have some empirical data there, that actually might tell us an awful lot about where the burden sits. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, so I just was finishing reading a, a paper um, today, um, um, which makes the point that actually, even if the chances are very, very small, prima facie, that can be overcome by actual evidence. So you have to, even if the evidence, or even if the, the prior probability is very small, you still have to look at the evidence. If somebody says they have evidence, well then you can't rule it out before listening to the evidence. The example is the lottery. The chances that you won the lottery are very, very small, but you could have evidence that you did in fact win the lottery. Yeah, and you might also argue that we should also be engaging some kind of precautionary principle as well. You might go, well, look, maybe we do literally live in a world where conspiracies are incredibly rare and mm -hmm. even rarer still when they're successful. But at the same time, we still don't want to live in a world where appalling behavior is able to be undertaken even if it is rare. At least someone should be vigilant and checking these things out. So mm -hmm. even if the sum is small, you might go, well, the precautionary principle says we still should engage in it in the same respect that, you know, we wear seatbelts in cars, even though we know that dying in a car crash is a relatively rare event. Mm -hmm. But of course, you don't know when that event is going to occur. Because if you, if you did know when that event was going to occur, you'd put the seatbelt on just before the accident was about to hit. <laughs> but of course, no one knows when an accident is about to hit. In the same respect, in a society where even conspiracies are rare and successful conspiracy, conspiracies are rarer still, mm. you don't know when they're going to occur. So you should just be vigilant about any claim there is a conspiracy going on, on there, even if you want to admit that some of those theories are probably prima facie unlikely just because they have wacky characteristics, fantastic characteristics, and the like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, so part one of the book is kind of recapping the philosophical discu mm. discussion, and long-term listeners of the podcast will be very aware of exactly what's been going on there. Is there any particular point about the philosophical debate that you think is kind of worth emphasizing? the kind of the work we've done or is there a is there any lacuna in the work that's been done that you f you feel that we we should be looking at moving forward uh, i guess i don't really have a good answer to that um i i sort of feel like um the particularists have uh won the debate uh, but yet um 
arguments still get um, generalist arguments generalist in spirit keep being raised you know and people keep saying yeah but particularism is um and so that's where things seem headed now is just um people trying to um continue to to find some way of of undermining the particulars perspective i mean I worry that we're going to end up in a kind of game of whack-a-mole in the short term, where, as you say, it seems it seems there is a consensus now amongst philosophers who regularly write on right. conspiracy theory theory that particularism is the right way to go. Occasionally you'll get a in-the-spirit-of-generalism reply going, oh, but these conspiracy theories are obviously unwarranted. That justifies our suspicion of them. And then we have to reply to those particular pieces. Mm -hmm. And I I worry that we're going to end up in a kind of holding pattern Mm -hmm. of some kind where we're having to go, no, that was discussed back in 1995. Brian mentioned that, or Charles mentioned that in 2007. Or this is a resurgence of Neil Levy's view on epistemic authority, which was mm. replied to by David Cody, Lee Basham, and myself in these particular places. We've had these debates before. Why are you bringing it up again? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or even if it's a new idea, but it's just a new idea that then we have to go and whack that mole down too, because that that's not um it's not it might be interesting but it doesn't actually work yeah yeah and i suspect we'll be coming back to this when we talk about part three and exactly what's going on with what's going on in the social sciences around conspiracy theory theory but let's talk about the perennial issue in the literature Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule, who you deal with in part two. Now, Mm. co-host Josh continues to be astounded by just how much pushback there has been to this one paper by Adrian Vermeule and Cass Sunstein, which was then revised into a solo piece by Cass Sunstein himself in a letter book, which is also a fairly interesting state of affairs in that it's basically the same text with very little different minus one author which does make you wonder how much did adrian vermeul actually contribute to this particular piece maybe maybe we can touch upon upon that so can you give us a gloss as to what they said and why why we have to keep on pushing back on what they said okay so there's two aspects of of what they said um uh, in fact, in one version of the paper, it's called Conspiracy Theories, Causes and Cures. And so there's a cause aspect and the cure aspect. The cure aspect is what got the most attention. Um, and the cure is cognitive infiltration um, that um, agents and allies of the government um, would infiltrate um, groups espousing conspiracy theories, both in real space and in cyberspace, um, and seek to, um, so it's a kind of a cognitive infiltration in the sense that you are trying to introduce into the group cognitive diversity um, by, I suppose, sort of 
undermining the conspiracy theory are saying, you know, why sort of debunking, but from inside as though you are a conspiracy theorist yourself. Um, because the premise is that the conspira conspiracy theorists um, just don't trust anybody who isn't one of them. Um, so you infiltrate the group and then try to try to undermine it from within. Uh, and importantly, I think importantly, um, he or they mention um, that if you get caught as an infiltrator, um, or if you're suspected, uh, um, I guess that's, that's better than getting caught, just being suspected, right? And, and then people start suspecting other people and um, suspicion arises and, and that's all for the good, right? Because after all, and this kind of shows that, that, that this is after all an attempt to try to undermine these, um, these groups, um, not necessarily because of reason, but you've you've are not necessarily convincing them with reason, but because you've decided that their theories are false, and you'll undermine them any way you can. I mean, it sounds like they want a conspiracy against conspiracy theorists, which seems like the kind of thing that would then encourage conspiracy theorists to believe there is a conspiracy against them thus proving the existence of some conspiracy. It, yes, it, it, just, it, it, seems, it seems so obviously wrong. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that someone who was... Kessanstein was... I can't remember which czar he was within your American system. I still, I still can't get over the fact you have czars, let alone he was a czar. Well, he was referred to as a czar. I mean, that, it was yeah. the, he was the head of the uh, Office of uh, Information and Regulatory Affairs. Um, which, you know, you think about it, it does sound like the Ministry of Truth. Um, so it is kind of an Orwellian title, and it is very, seemingly very relevant to this whole idea of undermining um, conspiracy theories. Um, and yes, it's got this terrible irony um, in it. And um, he's espousing, or both of them are espousing uh, the virtues of an open society, Right, while they, while they're at the same time undermining it, um, so it's got all these problems. Sort of, you could call them political problems, I guess, or um, moral problems. Um, in addition, there are epistemic problems, and that goes to the the the, the causes part. And the causes part of the article is um, that. It's, they're trying to explain the persistence of conspiracy theories by appealing to um, informational and reputational cascades. So one person says, oh, I believe this conspiracy theory. And the other person, you know, maybe doesn't, doesn't have a strong opinion, so they kind of go along with it. And then another person comes over and they, they don't believe it initially, but both of these two guys are saying they believe it, and so they go along with it. Those, inf those are informational cascades. And then the reputational cascades is people say that they believe in a conspiracy theory because they don't want to... Well, somehow, somehow it's better for their reputation among their peers. Now, one of the points I make is 
that's not plausible as an explanation, for, at least for some of the academics who exist, right, out there. Um, you know, the, when you think of the, um, the sort of the leaders of um, a conspiracy theory movement, think of 9-11, you think of um, Jones, what's his name, Stephen Jones, and you think of David May, Ray Griffin, and you think of um, uh, other people like that. Um, and the idea that their reputation uh, is enhanced um, by espousing this theory um, is just not really supportable. Yeah, there's something very interesting about this move because we actually see it in a lot of other reactionary spaces. Person X identifies with Y because it gives them social cachet and that's what makes them cool. So one of the recurrent features we find around the trans panic happening both in the UK and the US being, oh, there, there are only a lot of trans people around now because it's cool to be trans. You know, there's a lot of social cachet. And then when you talk to the members of those communities, they go, well, actually, no, I mean, we're routinely oppressed and marginalized. I mean, you and your ivory tower might go, oh, they look cool. They look like they're having a great time. We're really not. And you talk to members of pejoratively labeled conspiracy theory communities. And sure, there might be some cachet within the small section of the community of kind of mutual support. But from an outside perspective, no, they're being looked down upon, they're being chastised, they're being made fun of. There's no cascade in the way that Sunstein and Vermeule seem to characterize it as. Right. And in the paper, I give examples of actual professors who have raised the issue and then um, the governor calls for their um, resignation and, and they come under fire and um, it's, it's clearly not the environment that, um, um, you know, where their reputation is enhanced. Now, one thing you noted, so I noted in the introduction to the section that there's a different version of this Sunstein and Vermeule piece published by Sunstein alone. But you noted that there's actually two versions of the original paper. Do you want to say something yeah. about that? Well, the first version of their paper was published online um i think that was more than a year before the um the published version or the the, the journal of political philosophy version and the the original version is longer and um and 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 actually even more problematic than the um the public published version the the journal version and um, and but I criticize both versions. Um, and then when Sunstein does his revision in his book, he brings back in some of the stuff he cut out of that original version, um, and some some of the problematic stuff that I had criticized him for. Um, <laughs> that wasn't I criticized him for in the in the online version that wasn't actually in the journal version, but then is now reintroduced um, in the um, in the book version. Um, 
So yeah, so there's uh, those three different versions. And my, my last uh, chapter in this section um, is on this revised uh, version, the book version of Sunstein's article. Um, and there he says, well, there and in the preface to that book, he suggests that he's been um, misunderstood um, and that really when he was advocating these cognitive infil infiltrations, he was only talking about um, foreign conspiracy theory groups, not U.S. domestic conspiracy theory groups. And, um, and so I look at his article with that question in mind. Is that a reasonable interpretation of what he says, even in the revised version? Um, he's got so many examples um, of, of what could only be domestic or at least include U.S. domestic um, conspiracy theory groups. So I find it implausible um, that he meant his, um, his infiltrations to, to occur only in foreign contexts. And does it make it any better that his, he's going, oh, no, we're not going to target Americans. It's going to be non-Americans we target. Does that actually, because, I mean, I'm thinking of the situation, let's take, let's assume for the purpose of argument that the official theory of 9-11 is correct, that al-Qaeda mm -hmm. committed the terror attacks in New York because of American interference overseas. It was a strike back against the kind of destructive work the U.S. has done in the in the Middle East. If Sunstein, if he's to be believed, because oh, we'll, we'll just we'll just play around with those conspiracy theory groups over there. If the groups who were responsible for 9-11 in this version of the story then find out that elements of the U.S. state post 9-11 are still engaging. In infiltrating and trying to change hearts and minds through covert means. That's going to make them go, well, we were justified in that first attack because they're still doing it. And they've even ramped it up now by doing psyops against us. I don't see how going, oh, we're not going to do it against Americans is any way of making the prescription any less appalling. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's less appalling to Americans. <laughs> And I think like some of the objections were uh, constitutional. And so, so the constitution is gonna apply in some cases strictly to Americans. So there, there's, there are some reasons that, his, that this move on his part makes it less objectionable, at least from certain perspectives. But, but uh, you raise a good point. I mean, it does introduce, it still introduces uh, problems um, or still has problems, even if it's in a foreign context. Yeah, it makes me think of, our, so our former Minister of Finance back in New Zealand once defended an illegal action taken by the National Party who were in government at the time as being pretty legal. And as legal scholars pointed out, you know, there is no, there is no category of the pretty legal. Something's either legal or it's not. And in the same respect, you might go, well, you know, Maybe what Sunstein's doing here is going, well, look, 
legally, this is what we're allowed to do because we're not dealing with Americans here. So that gets rid of all the objections. You go, well, you know, mm. I mean, that might be pretty legal, but it's still not defensible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, part three deals with the social sciences, and I think this is this is where the failure of intellectual critique, the kind of the second half of the title of your book, really comes in here. So there's been, you might say, kind of two parallel projects going on in conspiracy theory theory. There's the work in the social sciences, which is largely predicated on trying to diagnose what is wrong with conspiracy theory belief and what can we do about it. And then the kind of work that's going on in the humanities, including philosophy, if we want to put philosophy under humanities banner, I'm aware there's a huge debate there as to exactly where philosophy exists in the category of philosoph- of, of academic disciplines, but for the sake of argument, we'll be humanitarians. And that project has been, well, you know, we should actually be asking the basic question, is belief in conspiracy theories prima facie irrational? And what does that say once we oper- operationalize that? So what's been going on in the social sciences that you take it is kind of emblematic of a failure of intellectual critique? Um, well, it seems like there's uh, an effort to um, pathologize conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. So um, uh, some of the psychology uh, goes under the rubric of uh, anomalistic psychology, I think, I think is what they call it. Is that right? Um, and um, it's suggesting that there's something, you know, and it's sort of grouped together with thinking about superstition and, and stuff like that. Um, so there's sort of a presumption or bias um, against conspiracy theories it seems. And then they do these experiments um, where they, um, you know, sort of purport to be uh, just doing objective science. Um, And yet, um, at the same time, it's part of a uh, effort to fight conspiracy theories effectively, to uh, quote a, a piece that appeared in the Le Monde. Um, and there's, well, I uncover, um, quite, um, quite a few problems, uh, with, um, many of the, of the papers. Um, the one that is, I think most striking is, um, in a paper in, in 2012, um, called Dead and Alive in which uh, the authors um, purport to show that conspiracy theorists um, 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 are not, do not shy away from uh, endorsing even mutually contradictory theories. Um, And that, by the way, is, is cited by many people, including Sunstein, he makes some hay about that repeatedly, um, and um, it's described as a watershed moment that um, in the um, uh, psycholo- psychology literature on conspiracy theories. 
And um, the problem with that paper is um, the data just doesn't doesn't establish that conclusion um, because um, what they measure is not belief, right? So they, they conclude that conspiracy theories, the more likely you are to believe, for example, that uh, Osama bin Laden um, is still alive, the more likely you are to believe that he was already dead um, before uh, the raid on his compound. Um, but they didn't, they didn't study belief. That wasn't, that wasn't, um, they were studying, you know, what they were measuring was people's response in terms of, uh, and it was a, it was a scale, um, how plausible or how convincing or how worth considering or, or how coherent, uh, these theories are. And so you can be relative, you can think that a theory is relatively plausible, relatively compared to somebody who doesn't think it's plausible at all, right? Relatively more plausible than somebody else does. Uh, and at the same time, think a mutually inconsistent theory is also relatively more plausible than somebody who dismisses both of those theories, right? And there's nothing irrational about that. So basically, the conclusion of the paper makes it sound as if conspiracy theorists are irrational, but they haven't actually documented any irrational um, thought. Yeah, so this is a paper by Karen Douglas and Mike Wood. And Wood, I actually, and Wood is the Yeah, I remember, so at the Miami conference that Lee Basham and myself were at all the way back, I think, in the heady days of 2016, which seems like such a Mm. long time ago now, Lee actually, when talking with a general audience about these things, well, well, look, in a situation where I go, I've lost my keys, I don't know whether, I happen to know the keys are not on my person, so either they're in the front door, or they're beside the fridge. Now, those two things are mutually inconsistent. If the keys are in the front door, they can't be beside the fridge. If they're beside the fridge, they can't be in the front door. And Lee's going, look, I'm entertaining both ideas at the same time because I know the keys are not on my person. So I now think there are two live possibilities in the same respect. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you doubt the official theory about the death of Osama bin Laden, you might go, well, look, I know he didn't die on this date which means he might have died five years beforehand, or he might be in disguise in Plattsburgh. I don't know, but I'm, I'm, I'm simply going, I don't believe the official theory, and here are two relative alternatives, which you know mm. I can go away and test. And, and, and as you point out, all they're doing is pointing out that this is how people make decisions based upon limited information and what you might call the realm of possibility space of, I know X isn't true, and that then means there are some live possibilities which might be true, and I'll endorse those until such time I know exactly which one of them I'm going to say is true. Yeah, and yet this was the basis of much mockery of conspiracy theorists. Um and, and the irony is, of course, that it's, it's the authors of the study that have made the intellectual error. Um, and what's maybe a little surprising is how few social scientists noticed. Um, uh, Lee and I, it turns out, um, Lee Basham and I, 
were working on what was substantially the same critique um, at the same time. And he found I had contacted Wood and then he had contacted Wood and then Wood had, had mentioned to him that I had already <laughs> talked to him or co- not talked to him, but emailed with him. And so then Lee contacted me and said, looks like we're working on the same, <laughs> on the same, same project here. Uh, and we were. Yeah, and that seems to be a kind of recurrent feature for some of the social science work, particularly in social psychology, isn't it? Studies which don't necessarily contain what they say on the tin and yet Mm. get repeated ad nauseum in the rest of the social psychological literature as if it's Mm. absolute proof that conspiracy theorists suffer from this epistemic vice, this error of probabilistic reasoning and the like. Right, 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 right. Um, so that was the most striking uh, case, I guess. But, um, but yeah, I, I discussed many um, um, cases like that, both for the, um, uh, well, that uh, article is discussed in the chapter on monological belief systems, but the, the next chapter is on um, um the paranoid style, and and once again, there you've got, it's almost like a ritual. Every every um, social science uh, paper on conspiracy theories has to describe the paranoid style, um, as if that defines what a conspiracy theory is. Uh, specifically, that they are vast, um, evil, and preternaturally effective. Uh, conspirators, uh, you know, um, basically controlling everything. And it just doesn't, it doesn't characterize, accurately characterize many um, conspiracy theories. I mean, some perhaps, but um, not, not the interesting ones and not, not the ones that they even go on to um, talk about themselves in their own paper. Yeah, what always gets me about Hofstede and the paranoid style is that people quite happily cite Hofstede and often get him wrong at the same time by going with the paranoid style is a form of paranoia. And for all of Hofstede's faults in the paranoid style, at least he's very clear he's not making a kind of clinical diagnosis of paranoid Mm -hmm. ideation. It's something which is similar to and a lot like Mm -hmm. paranoia but even he admits because conspiracies occur, you can be you can have a paranoid style without being paranoid. But the thing right. is, people responded to Hofstadter in the decade following the publication of that work, pointing out many of the limitations of that work. And so people mm-hmm. like Gordon S. Wood, who went, you know, actually Hofstadter isn't quite saying what he thinks he is saying because his examples aren't very good. None of that ever seems to be incorporated into the literature. It's as if, I mean, right. and, I mean, we have a similar issue in philosophy. You get Popper back in the mid-20th century saying cons- the conspiracy theory of society is obviously an unwarranted stance to have, and that explains why conspiracy theorists are bad. And people to the say, well, okay, well, you know, Popper said conspiracy theories are bad, ipso facto. I mean, really, that's the last word we need on that issue. Right, right. And and maybe we should say, I mean, you've probably said this uh, many times on your uh, podcast already, but um, the problem with the conspiracy theory of society is that that is such an extreme view that most conspiracy theories don't, don't posit such an extreme view. 
so it's really very similar to the the paranoid style yeah yeah and yet somehow somehow it turns out if you're if you're one of the great men of intellectual history you get to have the last word even if decades pass and people go i don't think your last word was very good and yet somehow somehow those last words remain or everything else kind of just turns to dust right so do you have so this is and i I realize we're now moving into the realm of folk psychology here but do you have a theory as to why there's a kind of this kind of endemic issue in the social psychological literature why this continues to be a thing um no other than just in 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 the academy in general I guess this is a theory. In the academy in general, there's a there's a bias against conspiracy theories, um, and I, you know, I think you can um, kind of understand why that would be. Um, and then the question becomes, why is philosophy exceptional? I think maybe that's the question, and that I think there's an answer to. Um, philosophy is exceptional because, well, what is philosophy and you know, William James, I like his definition of philosophy as the uncommonly stubborn attempt to think clearly, right? And philosophers are willing to even question the very existence of the external world, right? And so we're, we're, we're not embarrassed to, uh, you know, ask something bizarre and, and ask, well, you know, does this, can this hold up maybe? Um, and so, for us, we, we, we pressed a little harder um, and came to the conclusion, well, you know, some conspiracy theories actually turn out to be true. So, you know, and then this particular position uh, got articulated and other people said, no, I can't possibly be right. And then wrote some other essays and we said, no, it's still right. Um, and so, and enough of us, you know, we're willing to chime in that we've got a consensus um, in our little domain. Uh, but most of the rest of the academy is um, frankly not as rigorous. Now, I want to focus on that in our little domain thing here, because whilst, like you, I think particularism is the best view to have about these things called conspiracy theories, and I think we've been very successful in defending particularism against generous attacks. But I kind of worry about maybe the overly idealized view of philosophy here, because certainly (laughs) my experience of philosophers who don't deal with the philosophy of conspiracy theory is that Mm. they tend to lean generalist. So is there intellectual failure going on within our broader discipline of the philosophers? Well, um, I I think it's just a matter of focus. I mean, I'm just guessing again, you know, but so people who haven't, philosophers who haven't looked carefully at this issue, um, by definition, haven't looked carefully at it yet. Um, Were they to... uh, like, let's, let's take Brian Keeley, for example. He starts off his essay um, under the assumption, well, he's, gonna, he's trying a generalist project, but he's intellectually honest enough to recognize um, 
you know, in that very article uh, that the, the generalism that he thought might have might work doesn't. Um, and of course, there's going to be variations among philosophers, and some some um, are, you know, not going to be convinced by the particularist arguments. But um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just I've got a rose-colored glasses when I think about, about my fellow philosophers. But I just suspect that it's easier to convince a philosopher uh, of something when you've got a, an actual better argument than convincing uh, other people. So, and this is, the, you, you, if you don't want to answer this question, that's fine. But what do you think of the new generalist? That's the new the new generalists who are appearing in the philosophy of conspiracy theories. There's, there is so the kind of work we're seeing from M. Julian Napolitano, Kevin Ruta, right. Keith Harris, and of course Kassam Kwasam Kassam, whose name I will probably never yeah. pronounce correctly because I always get the first and last name the wrong the wrong way around. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so I guess I see what you're saying. I mean, these are intelligent people, and they don't get it yet um so is that, is, that, is that the point yeah um uh so um right um and again so there's there's going to be variations and some people's biases are such that they're just not going to ever get it um um and so i don't have much hope for kazam but um um yeah, it's a good question, and and of course I'm I'm being I'm being arrogant here, obviously, <laughs> um, but um, um, it does seem to me that the particularist position is pretty strong, and the debate has been a rout. That's just my my view of it, and maybe um, maybe. Uh, in essays to come, I'll be proven wrong, but um, um, it doesn't look that way from here. Actually, so this is a question which I ask myself from time to time. Could you imagine an argument that would turn you generalist? So a kind of argument well, that actually there is a good reason to have a dismissive attitude towards conspiracy theories. I think what you what you what where you were pressing me earlier on, um, uh, you know, with the exceptions and the subsets or whatever, and then just sort of encroach uh, upon the area of particularism that remains uh, defensible. Um, so that's that's possible. How far can you encroach on that and and picking off areas where okay, this subset we can we can be um relatively dismissive about maybe not absolutely dismissive but um um so yeah uh but as long as there's a strong analogy to actual cases um i think you have to take them seriously and certainly we we don't seem to live in a world yet where conspiracies don't occur 
Mm-hmm. Indeed, there's you know there's an entire investigation going on by your government at the moment about exactly who knew what and who who covered up what on January sixth mm. of last year. So you know there's been some fairly major events, and it doesn't really matter where you sit on the spectrum of what you think happened on January sixth. Either you think that the congressional investigation is legitimate and they're uncovering a conspiracy by members of the White House and their aides to enact some kind of insurgency or coup, or, and this is a kind of Charles Pigton argument, you think that the congressional investigation is based upon a conspiracy itself to tar poor old Donald J. Trump with crimes he Mm. never committed. But it seems either way you're going to believe that there's some level of conspiracy operating in the American government, no matter what branch, which means that we still live in a world where it seems like we we at least know there is a conspiracy that went on, whether we know which one it is. Yeah. And also I'd like to mention that um, one thing that I think sets me apart from most of the other particularists, except perhaps Lee Basham, um, is the degree to which I'm willing to defend um, the controversial cases. And um, when we look at the prior probability of conspiracy, um, you know, we we look at, you know, established cases. Um, and there's a tendency... I think among a lot of people to weigh the um, controversial cases on the side of untrue or unwarranted rather than as un- un- uncertain, right? And these are still, it's possible that these are actually uh, theories that should be weighing on the, um, on the side of, yeah, this is how conspiratorial we are. Um, Because it's not clear whether that was a real conspiracy theory or not. Real conspiracy or not. Yeah, and the controversial cases are probably the more interesting ones because they're the ones which often challenge the official theory in a fairly radical way. Mm -hmm. Um, And usually if if they're controversial, they've got some evidence base now you know there'd be critique of the evidence base and so on but there's there is um like with jfk there's this huge pile of mutually conflicting you know um lines of evidence um and that's what makes it so interesting is it's hard to sort out and there's various ways you could weigh the different strands and different things you could focus on. And and numerous at this stage, inconsistent deathbed confessions. <laughs> right, 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 right. To yeah. the point where I, I, I maintain that if I know I'm on my deathbed, I'm also going to claim that I helped assassinate JFK, which will be very mm. confusing because I wasn't even mm. born when JFK was alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you going to claim to be just a bench warmer? Oh, so I, 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 I made the fatal bullet, the magic bullet. That was me, my magic bullets. Yeah, no, the, the, I mean, the, the controversial cases kind of always fascinate me because I think, as you're hinting at, 
part of the issue about talking about controversial cases is there's a worry that even being seen to even conditionally engage or support these things puts you into the label of being a crank. So it's very easy to talk about historical cases where we know conspiracies occurred. No one doubts the Moscow show trials. Virtually no one doubt Watergate, although there are, it still turns out, some Nixon defenders out there who maintain he did nothing wrong and it was a conspiracy by the Democrats to tar a really, really good man. But when you start talking about controversial cases, people go, oh, but you must be a bit of a crank to even want to entertain that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so I'm trying to argue that actually those cases should be looked at. That sophisticated people, we're back to the beginning of the of the um, interview here, that sophisticated people should be, um, uh, should take those cases seriously. Yeah, yeah, they, they at least should be part of the calculus that we have, whether or not we end up believing them. They're the kind sure. of things that at least should be analysed. And I mean, to go back mm-hmm. right to the beginning again as well, I mean, I always maintain that, I don't believe alien shape-shifting reptiles exist. At the same Mm -hmm. time, I think somebody should be investigating David Icke's claims because if it turns out he's correct and we really are controlled by a historic lineage of alien shape-shifting reptiles that eat babies and drink human blood, we probably want to put a stop to that because it's it's startling news and also it's definitely not good news. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when when does the book come out? What's the what's, what is the official unveiling slash publication date? I believe the official date is July twentieth. Oh, so, so about twelve days from... away. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. at least, or, or actually, one week away since broadcast, since this will be going out next week. Okay. And mm-hmm. do you know what the recommended retail price is? Too high. Um, yeah, unfortunately, that's, that's true for every academic book. It's um, maybe maybe $90 or $95. Uh, my previous book on Confucianism was 95 I think. Um, so, yeah, I, I, had, I had hoped that it would be less. Actually, your book was not so, too bad. Um, the, not, the, not the first one, but the um, collection. Um, that was... That's only like $36 or so. Yeah, yeah. so somehow Roman and Littlefield are able to produce enough copies en masse to actually bring the price down. But academic Mm. presses, by and large, go, no, we're publishing only in hardback, and we're only publishing at a price point which libraries can afford to buy. Or possibly Elon Musk. You could always get Elon Musk to buy a few copies to give out to friends. Mm Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, publication prices are uh, horrendous, which is why I always recommend ask people to ask ask your library to bring in a copy because if you can't afford it, your library probably can. Right. Although I do think that uh, there's a, a Kindle version which might be something half the price. Um, still not cheap, but um, a little bit more reasonable. Uh, and if only we could produce audiobooks. Mm. Although, let me see, if if you were to cast an audiobook, who would you get to be the person reading? So, assuming it's not you, which which, which celebrity would you like to read your your book out? 
Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Um, Tom Cruise is the word name that comes to mind, but that's not really well thought. Mm, I, I, have a, I have a feeling he might be a little bit outside your price range. He should, he, but he has to read it um, while he's on one of his famous runs, so he's breathlessly <laughs> reading it. <laughs> Actually, Keanu Reeves, I think, would actually be would be quite good for that. He's so Ke- Keanu Reeves is very big into Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. He believes Edward de Vere wrote the Shakespearean canon. I I think he'd be the kind of person who'd quite happily read your book out loud and probably for a fairly decent price. Mm-hmm. Get your people to contact Keanu Reeves. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Now, is there anything else you'd like to promote, given you've got a, a platform here? Oh, well, um, I guess people could check out my um, my website, which is just my name, curtishagen.com. Um, That's Curtis with a K. And that just has um, um, abstracts and summaries and uh, excerpts and some links to my articles and some other stuff. Um, so if people want to get a uh, overview of the kind of stuff that I've been writing about. That's a good place to look. And are you still doing any Chinese philosophy? Uh, yes. Let's see. Um, I'm planning to, I, um, I, I had been planning to get back to that um, sooner. Um, but when COVID came along, I've been sort of more focused on, following what's going on with that um, and finishing off some conspiracy theory articles. And, um, and so I'm, I'm just keep postponing. Um, um, but I do plan to, to, to get another book, kind of a sequel to my first book, actually on the philosophy of Shunzi. Um, planning to do that at some point. It's a much better pronunciation of that than I than I than I attempted, and I'm trying to learn Mandarin, but that th yeah. sound at 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 mm. the end is so hard mm. to do. Think of like suds, the end of the word suds. Z. Yeah, th, th, th. suds. Yeah, it's a it's a it's the it's the tonality of Mandarin I'm finding particularly mm. difficult to. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're just not used to trying to keep track of that. Should my voice be going up or down? Or well, I mean, as I like to joke with my point. with my Mandarin teacher, New Zealanders basically talk in a monotone and then go up at the end of every sentence, <laughs> and that's basically we 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 have two tones, and oh, and we only use one of those tones to end a sentence. We don't use it for anything else. Uh huh. Well, thank you, Curtis. It has been a most enlightening discussion about your new book, that's Conspiracy Theories and the Failure of Intellectual Critique, published later this month by the University of Michigan Press. And I would urge people to go out and buy a copy, but as we've discussed here, it is going to be fairly expensive. So maybe ask your library, or if you've got a loved one, ask for a copy for your birthday, or maybe even Christmas. Good idea. Yes, I mean, I mean, we're never going to make a large amount of money from royalties from books, but it would be nice to be able to afford a decent bottle of whiskey from time to time based on a royalty check. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Curtis. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Great. Thank you. 
The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M.R. Extenter. Our show's consp- sorry, producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com, and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember, it's just a step to the left.